Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Church and Happy Easter. If it's your first time at Grace, we'd love to know who you are. Tear off the green portion of the card you got when you walked in and fill out as much information as you feel comfortable. Baskets will be passed around at the end of the service. You can go ahead and place your card in there or stop by the Connection Center on your way out to meet one of our pastors. We want to stay in touch with you throughout the week. If you have your phone with you and you haven't already done this, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and the Grace Church app. If you search That's Grace on Spotify, you can even hear what we're listening to and singing over the weekends. Again, it's great to have you with us this weekend. Let's get started with the service. So I was a uh, youth pastor before I was a uh, pastor, been a Bible college professor, and I was raised in church my entire life. I went to, I don't even know how many Easter, well, I know how many <laughs> I'm 46. I've been to 46 Easter's now. I've been to a, a ton of Easter's. But if, if we're counting religious bonus points as a preacher's kid, holy cow, man. Like I, I went to it like I grew up in a super, super conservative religious family in a super, super conservative religious church. I mean, I was I was raised in one of those Baptist churches that were like independent, fundamental, punch you in the mouth, hate everybody that don't believe exactly like us Baptist churches. Right, that's how. I, that's how, like so. I had like Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday night choir practice, Sunday night church, uh, Monday night Bible study group, Tuesday night visitation. This is real. Wednesday night church and sometimes Friday night youth activity. Homeboy is like super Christian. Like if you could get like bonus stars for this stuff, my whole chart is filled. Now my mom and dad, and this is not a bragging thing. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> You don't brag that your mom and dad forced you to go to church all the time. Um, I grew up in a religious bubble is the point I'm trying to make. And my mom and dad put me in a religious school. So I went to Christian elementary school, Christian middle school, Christian high school, went to a Christian college, got a Christian degree, graduated with a Christian degree and went to go work in a Christian church. All of my entire life, I'd been in a Christian bubble surrounded by everybody that shared my worldview. I never had to question my beliefs. Ever had to do that. And it's not that the things that I was taught was wrong, but in my mid-20s, it kind of dawned on me that I was Christian like most people are, you know, whatever they are, because it's just kind of like what you were brought up in. And I asked myself, if I was born in Afghanistan, would I be Christian? No. If I was born in Afghanistan, most likely I'd be what? Muslim. If I was born in Utah, most likely I would be Mormon. If I was born in, in China, I'd most likely be Buddhist. If I was born in India, then I probably would be Hindu. Just like I'm born in America, in the South, raised in a Christian family, so I'm raised Christian. But am I Christian? Like, is this what I want to be? Like, why am I this? Because if I'm this only because I was born into this, there's a whole lot more to being Christian than just showing up at church. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you get into the tough stuff that Jesus said, like now that I'm starting to be, like, like I'm an assistant pastor to church and I'm struggling with whether or not I'm an atheist. I probably should have figured this out before I got into this line of work, right? You can probably tell where I ended up. I'm still here, right? But there's a journey in between then and now that got me to where, to where I, am, I am now. But now that I'm starting to actually like start to teach Bible story lessons to teenagers and this kind of stuff, I'm coming across things that Jesus said that are kind of tough. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to God unless they go through me. Whoa. Like, that's not cool. I mean, I, I'm not an idiot. I know how that sounds. 
Then I moved to Stoughton, and most of my friends are not very religious. I mean, most of them believe in God, but they've just kind of walked away from him. Not because they've walked away from God as much as they've just walked away from religion in general because of all the extra junk that got added along the centuries. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going into any deal. I'm just saying they're, they're like most of us, just kind of like drifted off a little bit uh, along the way. And so I've got, because of coaching in Little League, uh, several Muslim kids uh, in my son's grades that I've coached along the way. I've become friends with their parents. It's not like we're buddies. I don't want to exaggerate. But I've got Muslim acquaintances and a lot of Jewish friends. And then a lot of friends that aren't really anything. And so when Jesus says that I'm the way, the truth, and life, and nobody goes to God unless they go through me, I know how that sounds and I know what it means. And that's why I'm so uncomfortable with it. So I'm figuring this out in my 20s. Last week we read a verse where Jesus had actually said that if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to give up everything you own to follow me. Now if that's what it means to be Christian, then the truth is most people who call themselves Christians, Jesus wouldn't call Christians. Because we have a hard time forgiving people and being nice to people in traffic. <laughs> or is that just me? <laughs> let alone being willing to sell everything I have to follow him. You know what I mean? So a lot of us, we treat the Christian thing as kind of like a half in, half out. We'll give like the religious thing the weekends, but we don't want God to invade any other area of our life. Don't touch my budget, Jesus. Don't touch, don't sit. <laughs> You're laughing over here. That was somebody's soft spot. Um, but <laughs> don't, don't touch my, fi- my finances. Don't touch my relationships. Don't touch... My, my sexual experiences don't touch what I do on the internet. Don't touch, like, like, don't, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're half in and half out. But Jesus doesn't really leave room for that. He says, you've either got all your chips on the table, or I don't want any of your chips. So while we come at it half-hearted, he said, if you're half-hearted, you ain't in at all. Ugh. You see what I'm saying? Like, this is the struggle I, I went through. Like, am I really going to be all about this or not? Like, how do I know, how do I know these things are true? Do I believe these only because my mommy and daddy said so and the Sunday school teachers said so? And for me, it all came down to the resurrection. That's what did it for me. Christmas isn't what did it for me. I mean, I love Christmas. I love, you know, the baby, you know, the eight-pound Ricky Bobby Jesus in the manger. I, I love the presents. I love the wise men. I love the star. I love the shepherds. I love all of those, I love all of those things, but that isn't what nailed it down for me. What nailed it down for me really was Easter. It's the resurrection. That's what did it for me. But what about it specifically? Because we do know from history that the idea of God dying and coming back to life didn't start with the disciples. And there's a theory that maybe they just inventing the myth of Jesus kind of picked and you know, parts and pieces from other religions to, like even the idea of a virgin birth doesn't start with the disciples and start with the virgin. The virgin birth doesn't start with Mary. That goes back to Mesopotamia. And so maybe the disciples really did pick parts and pieces of other ancient religions and put them together into a new package and and they rebranded a bunch of old myths and put it together and started a new religion. And there are a lot of genuine people following this new religion. What if it's that? Because if it's that, I don't know if I could give the rest of my life to teaching something that I don't even know for sure is really true. You see what I'm saying? But what I found out in this journey of trying to figure out what I believe 
I found out that Easter doesn't start in the Christian New Testament. Easter actually is first referenced in the Jewish Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible, what Jewish followers of Jesus would refer to as the first covenant, or Christians referred to as the Old Testament. And it's not just anywhere in the Tanakh. It's in the Torah. That's like the top five. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's, that's Moses' top five section. That's, and it's not, and even in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it doesn't show up in the, the he begat and the he begat and the he begats and the, 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 the tough to read parts. It shows up in the first book, in the first three chapters. If you've ever been bored in a hotel and grabbed the Gideon Bible out of the nightstand, I bet you you've read it. All you have to do is get three chapters deep and you read the first reference to Easter. So the truth is, it even predates Mesopotamia. The idea of Easter goes back to the garden. In the garden, God created man and woman. To be in relationship with him. Create him perfect in a perfect world. See, a lot of people are derailed with belief, with faith, with theology because of the existence of evil. The idea is that if there is a perfect God who is 100% all-knowing and 100% all-powerful, then why does evil exist? I know where evil comes from. It doesn't come from God. I've seen where evil comes from. I'm, ca I'm pretty much capable of evil all on my own. I don't even need Satan to lead me into evil, to be honest with you. I don't have to. I just need rush hour traffic. And I'll lose my religion quick. Because there are a lot of idiots on 93 every day. Can I get a amen? <laughs> you could be an atheist and you would amen that one right there, right? That's just true. Um, oh, crud, where was I? The garden. So God gave, I believe evil exists because free will exists. God gave them the right not to love them back. And he told them the consequences. He said, on the day that you choose to rebel against my authority is the day that you die. And that's not God being mean. That's just God being honest. When you walk away from the creator of life, what's left? Death. It's like if you go the opposite of in, you go out. The opposite of up is down. When you turn off the light, there is dark. When you walk away from the creator of life, you get death. That's just rational. God, being a good and loving God, just wanted them to know the consequences of this choice. And he allowed them to bring about evil, death. And it's because they chose to walk away from all that is good, we find all that is bad. Murder, rape, abuse, lying, stealing, betrayal. All of these things are fabrication of our dirty consciences. Not God's. And it exists because he, then why did he give us free will? And I would say it's because he's love. If I forced my wife to be in a relationship with me, then would that be motivated by love for myself or love for her? Where's that come from? If I forced her to date me, is that most loving to her or is that most loving to me? Me. Because the most loving thing I could do for her is to allow her not to love me back. Which is what God did. The most loving thing. We just acted like morons. So he sat them all down and he said, I told you this was going to happen. On that day, they died spiritually. And they should have died physically too. They should have. God had every right in that moment to squash mankind and leave this planet to just the plants and animals. But we were the ones created in his image, not them. And he did something different. He killed something else. They had made for themselves covering with fig leaves. God said, I, 
That's not the consequence. I told you the consequence was death. So he made them a covering for their nakedness out of goat skins. And the goat was not in them. What happened to the goat? Who killed the goat? God killed the goat. For who? For us. What had the goat ever done wrong? Nothing. The goat died so that we wouldn't have to. And from then on, anyone who was a follower of God would offer the life of an innocent to take the place of the life debt we owe God. And we still owe God because we still break God's laws and his commandments. You, you've heard of the commandments, and I've, we've broken them. The first one is don't make anything more important to you than me. But how many of us have ever broken that one? That's all of us. Don't raise your hand because they get increasingly more embarrassing. The second commandment is don't make any statues to bow down or pray to. Don't pray to anybody else but me. But how many of us have ever lit a candle in front of a statue? That violates the second commandment. How many of us have ever tried to talk to a dead grandmother? I tried to pray to my grandmother. I did not even know it, but I was breaking the second commandment. The third one is don't take my name in vain, and all of us are potty mouths. Everybody in here. Don't ever skip the Sabbath. How many of us have ever skipped a day of worship for God? All of us. I'm a preacher. I have, so you probably have too, right? The fifth one, don't ever disrespect your parents. The sixth one we feel kind of good about, don't murder anybody. I hope you're not worried about that one. If you have, don't tell me we have security right outside. But they, Jesus then goes and says, if you've ever hated somebody, you're guilty of murder in your heart. The adultery one, which comes next, he said, if you've ever lusted, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. Whoa, now if you're judging me on things that are in my heart, that's really embarrassing. Right? Then the next one says, don't steal. The next one says, don't lie. The next one says, uh, the, what, then the last one, am I on the last one? I think I'm on the last one. It says, don't wish that somebody else's stuff was your stuff. Are there any that you pass? Any that I pass? So when we stand before God on judgment day, and he says, are you innocent or guilty? Just Isn't that what every judge asks? I don't know why we believe that if we're good people, we make it. Would any judge let a good guy, oh, you've only killed one person, go ahead and go free. Judge doesn't care how many hours you volunteered as a candy striper, or for the Boy Scouts, or for the Buddies Club in middle school. A good judge only cares about whether or not your entry, excuse me, if you're innocent or guilty of the crimes for which you're accused. And so on judgment day, when God says innocent or guilty, what will every one of us say? Guilty. So if God is good, will he let you go free? He shouldn't, not if he's good. And he shouldn't have let them go free. But it's because he was love, he allowed somebody who was innocent. See, because he is love, he allows somebody who's innocent to take the place of somebody who's guilty. So that's what he did. And then for the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, there's over 300 different indications on the life of the Messiah, who he would be, what would happen to him, where he would go, what he would do, why he would come. And we're going to look at all 300 of those today. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just 200. No. Three. Isaiah chapter 53. If you got your Bible, go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is one of the most famous prophets uh, in, in all of Jewish history. Uh, he's right up there with Moses. In fact, it depends on which religious Jewish friend you have that you talk to to ask which one is like most famous. But, uh, Moses is definitely more famous, but, but Isaiah is like way, way up there. He's talking about the Messiah. And there's a thread of Jewish theology 
that deals with the Messiah. When the Messiah uh, shows, shows up, um, um, will he be like a, show, like a reigning king or a suffering servant? And it's because of this passage of Scripture that the, the idea of the suffering servant comes in. And I just remembered, I forgot to tell you why I brought up the garden in the first place. I have to tell you this because it deals with this. So when he sits them down, Adam and Eve and Satan, he says to Satan, Genesis chapter 3, here's where Easter shows up in the very first book. <laughs> Holy cow, I got a real long rabbit trail. I'm back on the road. He sits them down and he says to Satan, someday the offspring of the woman will be born. It's the only place in the Bible. It actually says in Hebrew, it says the seed of the woman. We know from biology that the seed comes from the man, and that's all I'm going to say about that in church, okay? It's the only time in the whole Bible where it's referred to as a baby who would be born to a woman only. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A baby would be born to a woman only. You will take his life, but in taking his life, he will take away your authority in this world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it references that a virgin-born baby would be born who would die... And in his death would take away the authority of sin and Satan in this world. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 300 others like this one right here. So the story predates even Judaism. Isaiah's talking about him because the Jews had a name for this guy. This baby who'd be born, they started referring to him as Messiah, rescuer. In verse 50, chapter 53, verse 5. But he, the rescuer, the Messiah, the baby who'd be born to the woman whose death would take away the power of sin and Satan in this world. He, verse, verse 5, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So what Isaiah says is that the reason why the Messiah, when he shows up, would suffer is as a payment for our sins. Basically what Isaiah was doing is he was tying the goat and the garden to the Messiah's death. He's saying in the same way, just like all of us who are followers of God who are descendants of Abraham, and the non-Jews who follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, offer a goat, a bull, a lamb, or, or a cow every year as a sacrifice for our sins, that is a picture of the baby who'd be born to the woman whose death would take away the sin, that the power of sin and Satan in this world. He connects the two is what Isaiah does. Keep reading. Verse 7. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep but silent before the shears. He didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants so he wouldn't have any children. But he was struck down for the rebellion, or excuse me, that his life was cut short in midstream. So he wouldn't die in his old age and he wouldn't die in his youth. He'd die in the middle. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. Jesus died in between two what? Criminals. And he was put in a rich man's grave. This was written 700 years before Jesus shows up. Keep reading. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he'll receive many descendants. He'll enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience going through this death, this painful death on the cross between two criminals and being buried in a rich man's grave, because of this, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous because he will bear their sins. 
Basically, what the judge does when you say, I am guilty, the judge out of love will let somebody take your place. But it can't be somebody who's guilty because they've got their own crimes to pay for. If you and I both committed the cr a crime and were arrested, if you were my, my son Garrett, I was explaining this to him. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us? Why couldn't somebody else do it? And I told him, I said, if you and I were both bad, would we both deserve to go to jail? He said, yeah. Well, I said, would I stop loving you? He said, no. I said, would I want you out of jail? He said, yes. I said, but could I take your place so you could get out of jail? He said, no. I said, why? He said, because you were bad. So I said, if the judge was going to let somebody take your place in jail, who would it have to be? He goes, somebody who was not bad. Oh, that's why we needed Jesus. That's what Isaiah says. He is the goat from the garden who shows up in human history to take the punishment for us so that we wouldn't have to take that punishment. God said to Jesus, on the, Jesus said to God the Father on the cross, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to say to God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by God, so you would never have to be abandoned by God. Jesus was separated from God, so you would never have to be separated from God. Jesus died for our sins so that you wouldn't have to die for your sins. And that's what Isaiah said 700 years before it happened. 300 years before Isaiah, King David, he's famous. He's got the slingshot and the giant. Remember him? 300 years earlier, David says this in Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm 22, David says this. Talking, and it's a poem. From the perspective, first person, from the Messiah, the baby who'd be born to the woman whose death would end the rule of sin and Satan in this world. And he's describing what happens to the human body during crucifixion. 850 years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm chapter 22, verse 14. My life is poured out like wax. All of my bones are jerked out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, and the evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Okay, you did not respond to that like you should have responded to that. Hashtag boom. Somebody should be tweeting. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified on a cross... 850 years before crucifixion was invented, David said that when the innocent person, God, shows up in human history as a man, he is tortured to death and in death is pierced in his hands and feet. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody over here went boom. That's exactly it. Keep going. They have pierced my hands and feet, verse 17. I can count all of my bones. The description in Zechariah of the, the torture that the Messiah would go through, talking about the suffering servant that Messiah would show up as, is that he would be beaten so badly he would not be recognized as a man. I don't know if that means that he didn't, they didn't know, you couldn't tell after he went through all that torture what species he was or what gender he was. But either way, homeboy got jacked up. That's what's in the scriptures. He could look down and see his bones. Because they were broken and protruding? Possibly. Because his skin had been ripped bare by the cat of nine tails that had been lashed across his body 39 times? Possibly. But either way, his body was exposed. Now how about this? How did he, and this had nothing to do with the Bible that we're looking at today, the, the story that we're talking about, but it's just a point of detail for me. Now how, you've seen the crucifix. The skinny, wimpy Jesus. 
How can, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Trust me. Wait till we get where I'm going before you call, shout, you know, get, get on to me for this. All right? But that dude was a carpenter before there were power tools. Are you with me? He had forearms like your thighs. If that dude wanted a two-by-four, he didn't go to Home Depot or Lowe's. He went to the woods. Are you with me? This dude was like, my, you can worship the skinny, wimpy Jesus or the eight-pound baby Jesus with Ricky Bobby. I already referenced him. But my Jesus was jacked. That's all I'm saying. Because after he got tortured all night long and they made him carry his crossbeam, homeboy got up and carried a freaking 300-pound piece of wood. Halfway through the city. I'm not surprised he fell down halfway. I'm surprised he was able to stand up in the first place. Are you with me? But all that was talked about a thousand years before it happened. Keep reading. Verse 18. Then they divided my garments among them and threw dice for my clothing. That, that actually happens. The Roman soldiers did that. Chapter 16, for me, it's just two pages earlier. Verse 9, another poem written from first person from the perspective of the baby who'd be born to the woman whose death would take away the power of sin and Satan in the world. Verse 9 and 10 says this, No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice, my body rest in safety, because you will not leave my soul among the dead. So David says that the Messiah would die, but he wouldn't stay dead. Or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. So when he died and didn't stay dead, he wouldn't even be dead long enough to begin to stink. So when he died, he would raise from the dead, and dude wouldn't be dead for very long. That's all in the Jewish Bible. Now, you don't need proof to come to a conclusion in a court of law. You need evidence. And bro, this is enough evidence for me. But ultimately, it wasn't the final nail in the coffin of my doubt. When I struggle with faith now, I go back to the resurrection of Jesus, not because of just what the Hebrew scriptures said would happen hundreds of years before it actually happened. And scholars don't question that it happened, that Jesus died on the cross. I go back to the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Peter believed in the resurrection. And that might not sound as compelling to you and that is probably because you haven't considered what they wrote. When Jesus found the disciples, they were fishing. And he said, leave everything here and follow me. And they did. In John chapter 2, he starts teaching that he is the baby that's talked about in the Torah. And in all of the other 300 different places in the Hebrew Bible. And so the Hebrew scholars said, prove to us that you are God in the flesh. By giving us some kind of sign. In John chapter 2 he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And they said, what? It took us nine years to build. Like they didn't get it and he didn't explain it. He left it at that. Now Jesus was only here preaching with his disciples for about three and a half years. And halfway through that, he clarifies what he said back at the beginning. This is in Matthew chapter 16. If you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, it says in verse 21, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, and that he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. He died on Friday, was dead Saturday, raised on, third, on, on, on Sunday, 
on the third day, he rose from the dead. Now, Matthew, now listen, if they're making up the story of Jesus, if, if they're fabricating the myth of Jesus, then in their myth, they're saying that halfway into this, Jesus told them plainly what was going to happen. Now, why would Jesus tell them, fellas, I need you to know the end of this story, where this is all going. When we get towards the end of where we're going right now, I'm going to be arrested by our religious leaders. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to die. But don't freak out. I'll raise to life on the third day. Why would he be telling this to them? So that they could be prepared for it. So that when it happens, they won't freak out. So from then on, for the next year and a half to two years, he's talking about this to them all the time. Now they're on their way to Jerusalem when it's about to happen. And that's in Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, here's what it says. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately, and he told them what, he was, going, what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. Now, the Jewish form of capital punishment was stoning to death. So what, listen, this was not an accident. Jesus was not like derailed in the middle of his ministry. Jesus wasn't like murdered. Jesus knew this was going to happen, so it wasn't suicide. It would be like this, and I had a friend explain it to me this way. If you were walking across the, a busy street and had your headphones on or looking at your cell phone, because that would never happen to any of us, um, and a, <laughs> that happens to all of us all the time. If you're walking across the busy street and a semi-truck was coming for you, and it, let's just say its brakes went out, Jesus on the side, get out of the way, get out of the way, there's a semi, and, he, and you don't hear it coming. You don't, you don't see it coming, and you don't hear Jesus warning you. If Jesus jumped out into the middle of the road and pushed you out of the way and turned and took the full brunt of that Mack truck, that's not suicide, that's sacrifice. For somebody to know what's going to happen and intentionally do it so that somebody else wouldn't have to, it's not murder, it's not suicide, it's sacrifice. And there's nothing more noble to the human spirit than when one person would lay down his life so that somebody else could keep theirs. Am I right? That's exactly what Jesus did. So he told them this was all going to happen. Why? So that when it happened, six days later, they wouldn't freak out. So here we are in Mark chapter 14 when it's about to happen. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus had the last supper with the disciples, and he said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all said, which one of us? Because that's what we would ask, right? Which one of us will betray you? He says, the person to whom I give this piece of bread after I've dipped it in the wine. Jesus dips it in the wine. He eats a piece of bread, and he gives the piece of bread in the wine cup to Judas. Judas takes the piece of bread, dips it in the wine, eats it, and hands it to the next guy. And then they all go, so which one of us is it? Now, if I'm making up the story of Jesus, am I going to put that detail in there? That we're morons? Am I going to do that? Like, like, if after the fact, we figure out it's already Judas, and then we remember that Jesus had already told us it was Judas, am I going to, if I'm making up this story, insert in there that none of us got it? Because that's how stupid we are. What's the only motivation for putting that in there? It's true. It's the only lot, as unbelievable as the resurrection may sound, what they wrote is also unbelievably believable. Then this, Mark chapter 14, verse 50. So Jesus is arrested in the garden. Then all of his disciples deserted him and ran away. 
if I'm making up the story of Jesus, and I'm going to make up the story, and if I'm going to include in my made-up myth that he'd been talking to us about this for the last year and a half to two years, when it finally goes down, I'm going to say that me and the other boys, like, we, like, barricaded Jesus in. And, like, you get to him over my dead body, and then they, they punch, they sucker punched me, and I got knocked out. When I woke up, he was dead. Didn't work. But I tried. Like, that's how I'd make it up. How would you make it up? If you're making it up, how would you write that part of the story? You wouldn't say, we all pooped our pants and ran off into the night. It's implied. Right? I wouldn't say later on in this chapter that Peter, who becomes the first guy to ever preach a sermon in the name of Jesus, denies Jesus personally three times. If I'm Peter, that's not going to make the cut. I'm not, if I'm making up this story, I'm not going to put in there that I was asked, do you know, are you with him? No, I'm not with him. Somebody else come up, but you have the exact same accent. You've, you're from Galilee. I know you are. I can tell by your accent. I know you're one of Jesus' followers. No, I'm not. And then when a little girl walks up and says, yeah, you are. I saw you with him earlier this week. And then he starts swearing on the name of Jesus. If I'm making up the story, I'm not going to put in there that I dropped F-bombs on the name of Jesus. The fact that it's in there gives evidence to it being a myth or it being true. What's the only motivation for putting that in there? And then after Jesus shows himself to the disciples, oh, by the way, when Mary and the other Mary and the other Mary and all the other Marys, <laughs> if they were Marias, they'd be Portuguese, right? So they're Jewish or Portuguese, not sure. When they find Jesus' tomb empty and come back to the disciples and tell them that Jesus had risen from the dead, look what Luke chapter 24 says. I'm not going to look up, but it's going to be on the screen. Luke chapter 24, verse 11 says this. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. If I'm making this up, and Jesus has been talking about this for two years, when it finally happens, I'm going to say me and the boys threw a party. I'm not going to say we still thought it sounded ridiculous. And just like we never believed them before, we still ain't believing them now. I'm not going to put that in there. Is that how you would write the story if you were making it up? Then Thomas doesn't believe him because he wasn't there when Jesus shows up to them. He says, I'll only believe it if I see him and touch him. So when he finally gets his shot, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. And Jesus lets him because he is. And then Jesus says, you believe because you've seen and touched, but more blessed are those who will believe who've never seen or touched. Who's that? That's us. We're in the story. If they're inventing this story, they would not have rent, ret, written the actual story we read. It doesn't make sense if it's a myth. It only makes sense if it's true. So the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the only thing that explains what we actually see in history. If I wanted to start a myth that Barack Obama was a Mexican, it'll take a minute for everybody to catch what I just said. I couldn't start that myth in America. I'd have to go to a third world country where they don't have media, right? Where they don't have technology. That's the only shot I'd have at starting. I couldn't start it in the country that all knows what he looks like. So if I'm going to invent that Jesus rose from the dead in Jerusalem and I know it's not true, I'm not going to start it in the city full of hundreds of thousands of people who could disprove it. I'm going to go somewhere where they've never heard of the dude. 
So the fact that it started in Jerusalem and on the very first sermon had 3,000 converts. And we know this from history, not the Bible. History tells us Christianity grew faster during the lifetime of eyewitnesses than at any other time in human history. How do you explain that if they were lying? It was said by Caesar 30 years later that the followers of Christos, who believed he resurrected from the dead, had turned the whole Roman Empire upside down. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said, I delivered you now what was, I delivered you then, what was most important. That Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead on the third day to pay for our sins. And he said, and this person knows about it. And this per- Read it yourself, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, this per- and he starts naming people. And then 500 people at once, he says, most of whom are still alive today. Why did he even say that? Because if they didn't believe him, what was he telling them to, to do? Check it out. Prove it. You don't believe what I'm saying. And when they checked it out, what happened? They became followers of Jesus. That's the only thing to explain. I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and it has nothing to do with Christianity. It doesn't even have anything to do with the Bible. I believe Jesus rose from the dead because it's a matter of history, not religious philosophy. See, I was born in Pensacola. Whether you believe I was born in Pensacola doesn't matter. What you believe doesn't change anything. Either I was or I wasn't. Jesus rose from the dead. Either he did or he didn't. What you believe about it doesn't change a thing. And what I see from history, not the Bible, is evidence, conclusive evidence, that that dude died and rose from the dead. Nothing else explains what we actually see in history. So since Jesus did rise from the dead, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Now it only matters to me what he thinks. So when he says and tells me to lay down my life for him, he ain't being a jerk because he went first. Are you with me? So when he says, I am the only way to the Father, he's not being a jerk. He's saying, I'm God, and I know there's nobody else out here. Ain't nobody else coming for you, kid. I'm it. This ain't about Judaism, it's not about Islam, it's not about Christianity. It's about the broken condition of man and the God who put us here and our only shot of finding our way to him. And that's Jesus. So if you stand before God on judgment day and you hear depart from me, it won't be because God rejected you. It'll be because you today rejected him. And just like in the garden, it's your call. It always has been. Let's pray. God, let your will be done in us, or we've got no shot of your will being done through us. Wherever you're, we're at in our, in our walk, help us to take the next step. For those in here who are distant, I know they're not going to go from step one to step ten in one talk, but just help them to go to step two. Wherever we're at, whatever step helps to take the next one. If you right now are at a place where you're willing to place your, you, you recognize. And to me, the faith is not in believing Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's a matter of history for me. That's easy. The faith is me giving Jesus the rest of my life. That's the hard part. That's where faith comes in. Faith isn't believing. Faith is trusting. If you're willing to turn from your disobedience towards God and selfishness towards others. If you're willing to follow Jesus with the rest of your life, which is what Jesus asked every one of his followers to do, he's asking you the exact same thing. 
You just decide whether or not you're ready to. That's where faith comes in. Are you willing to trust God with the rest of your life? And if you are, tell him. Jesus, I know, I get it. Forgive me for my stupid things. Clean my slate. Give me a second shot. I know you rose from the dead with new life. I want new life too. I want it. And I'm asking you to help me follow you with the rest of my life. Help me to turn from my sin to follow you, Jesus. Make that your prayer. It's not the prayer you make. It's the faith behind it. It's the fact that you're willing to offer him your life. That's the faith. I ask that you're pleased by the attitude, direction, and focus of our hearts, Jesus. We've met in your name and pray. Amen.